You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, Agape Baptist Church. Uh, today's scripture is coming from John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. A very good morning. Uh, the Lord bless you, church. So welcome to Youth Sunday. Uh, you know, we haven't celebrated Youth Sunday to this extent for quite a while. Uh, but this year is a little special. All right, we are actually revamping and relaunching the uh, Radical Agape Use or the Race Ministry. So even our logo has been redesigned from this to this, right? And this also was designed by our user as well. So praise God for that. Now, in order to... Yes, yes, we can clap again, but yeah, sure. Let's go ahead, yeah. Very clapping church, wonderful. So in order to... Uh, Inaugurate this relaunch. You've got, as you can see, uh, the youth running most aspects of the service today, from the media to the hospitality to the worship and so on. And to prepare for this Sunday, like what Kelvin and Isin were saying, uh, most of these youths have been preparing for weeks, right? Not only on Sundays, but on weekdays and weeknights as well. So they've put in a lot of effort, a lot of time, and a lot of sacrifices. But I, I do think it's wonderful that our youth have this platform and this opportunity to serve the church in this way, and I believe that they have risen uh, to the occasion. So before we begin the sermon proper, could we again just put our hands together to appreciate them, uh, work so hard and, you know, stepped out of their comfort zones in serving us today. Praise the Lord. Now, since the start of the year, uh, the Raised Ministry has been slowly working, uh, working through the book of John. So each Sunday, uh, at the start of our race sessions, we break up into small groups and a race leader or race assistant uh, would take one such group and they would look through a passage from John together, uh, continuing from where they had previously left off. Now, one of those passages that was so impactful, right, was what you heard Rebecca read for us earlier in the scripture reading. Now, there is something so profound, yet so easily grasped about the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman caught in adultery. And so as we look at this passage, what we see is a picture of the gospel. Now, when I say the gospel, I'm talking about this radical news of unbelievable insteads. 
right? The gospel is the news of how the all-sufficient triune God decided to create mankind in his image instead of not creating man at all. That would have been perfectly fine. But the gospel is also about how man, instead of remaining in that happy, prosperous, and flourishing relationship with God, chose to rebel and still continues to rebel against God. But God, rather than leaving us to face the full consequences of our actions, instead gave us his son to bear those consequences in our place. And so for those who receive this great news with faith and joy, now that sinner is instead declared righteous, holy before God. The damned is instead redeemed. The enemy of God is instead a child of God. The one destined for hell has instead a hope and a future. And the one who has nothing but his or her sin now has instead everything in Christ Jesus. So when I talk about the gospel, that's what I'm talking about. It's the gospel of that radical news of unbelievable instead. And today's story gives us a picture of that radical gospel. So as I lead us through today's story, I'm going to be highlighting three statements made in today's passage. Firstly, teacher, what do you say? Secondly, whoops. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, secondly, woman, has no one condemned you? And finally, go, sin no more. Now, since it is Youth Sunday, I'll be focusing the applications of this text on the youth, but also on us as a church that ministers to these youth. So please don't switch off, all right? This is not just a sermon for the young people, right? This is a sermon for you and for me as well. So with that, let's get started. The first point, teacher, what do you say? So in today's passage, we find Jesus in the temple. Now by this point in John chapter 8, Jesus is actually pretty popular. He's done amazing miracles. He's also proven himself to be an incredible teacher of the scriptures. So as Jesus is in the temple, people begin to flock to him. And as these people gather around him, Jesus begins to teach. Now, as he is teaching, Jesus is interrupted by a commotion. A group of men dressed in very stately attire were making their way through the crowd towards Jesus. Now, from their attire, everyone knew knew who they were, right? These were the Pharisees and the scribes. And these were some of the most highly esteemed religious leaders among the Jews, And as they made their way towards Jesus, you could see that they were dragging this woman behind them. Now, the woman was not saying anything. Her head was down. Her hair covered her face, and probably they were stuck to her face because of her tears. And she was most likely not wearing very much. Now, as the crowd saw her, they began to murmur, Oh dear, isn't that so-and-so's relative? Doesn't she live at that house behind that place? What did she do? What did she get herself into? Why is she dressed like that? Do you think she did that? No wonder I always saw her around that guy's place. I knew it. I knew from the beginning she was trouble. Now the men who were bringing her, they finally arrived before Jesus. And they placed the woman before him. Jesus doesn't say anything. The leader among the group of Pharisees, he raises his voice and proclaims not only to Jesus but to the whole crowd. He says, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? Teacher, what do you say? To the Jews, Jesus was many things. He was the teacher, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. He was the judge, and they wanted to hear his decrees. To the Jews, Jesus was also the miracle worker, and they wanted to see his marvels. He was Jesus the liberator, and they wanted to see him deliver them from the Jews. But this was a case of mistaken identity. Jesus is not primarily a teacher. He's not primarily a judge. He isn't primarily a miracle worker. And he's not there to deliver these people from their political problems. He's none of these things. So who is Jesus? You know, in the chapters leading up to John chapter 8, there's just a handful of people who grasp his true identity. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in that same chapter, Andrew tells his brother, Simon, later called Peter, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited Savior. In John chapter 3, Jesus reveals himself to Nicodemus, saying that he is God's only begotten son, given to the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John chapter 4, the Samaritans discovered who Jesus was, and they declared this is indeed the Savior of the world. So who is Jesus? Jesus is Savior. Jesus didn't come all the way to earth just to teach, just to clarify what is good, what is bad, just to feed a hungry mob with five loaves and two fish. He didn't come all the way here just to heal sick people who would still eventually die. Jesus didn't come and leave his throne in heaven just to deal with our political problems here on earth. Jesus is Savior. In Luke 19, Jesus himself declares that he, the Son of Man, came to seek and save the lost. So people, above all else, Jesus must be Savior. His gift must be salvation, and his people must be saved. Now, as you read this, you're probably thinking, this is really basic. It's really obvious to us. Of course, Jesus is Savior. What's the big deal about this? Now, to just to demonstrate to us how easily we lose sight of this core basic truth, I want to give you a brief history of the youth ministry and how it has developed over the years, particularly in Singapore. Now, a hundred or so years ago, there was no such thing as a youth ministry, right? Uh, in fact, there was no such category as youth. And so someone like Pastor Tu could claim to be a youth, right? There, there was just children, and then there were the adults, right? Just these two categories. But it was only at the turn of the 20th century that this age group of youth, of adolescents, became recognized. Now, a few decades after that, youth-specific ministry began, Churches in Singapore began to catch on. Now, at that time, the thrust of youth ministry was holiness. But this idea of holiness was skewed heavily towards behavior. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't gamble, no tattoos, right? And of course, don't have sex, right? Youth ministry quickly became moralistic. And Jesus was presented primarily as teacher, as judge, Right? He told you how to live your life. He set the rules. And if you didn't obey, 
you were excluded, right? That was what youth ministry was about. Now, this focus on the youth becoming good boys and good girls was so damaging that eventually many of these youth who grew up, they left the faith. They stopped coming to church. So the moralistic approach failed. So youth ministries moved to the other extreme. They became relevant. They became cool. Youth ministries started youth bands. They hosted super creative, attractional events with inspirational speakers. And youth ministry was the place to be. And for a while, this looked like a successful model of youth ministry in Singapore. The years flew by and by, and many of these youth grew up and hit their 20s. But they just couldn't move on from their youth ministry. To them, the adult service was so dull. It was so boring. The adults themselves were so normal, so uninspiring. And they couldn't follow the sermons because they had such a low understanding of the Bible. Now, to resolve this, some youth ministries broke away from their parent churches to kind of form their own youth churches. And the youth, who now were already adults, they went over to those churches, but eventually, many of them stopped going to church and quietly left the faith. Some youth ministries saw this issue ahead of time, and they adjusted their ministry philosophy. They instead became outreach-oriented. You can change the world became the new slogan to youth. Do you know that God has a wonderful plan for your life? Became the key invitation to faith. And youth are the next generation of leaders became the church's mantra regarding the youth. Jesus here is presented as the purpose giver. Youth started getting involved in serving the church, going for overseas missions and becoming leaders in the church. They were challenged to make a difference wherever they were. And many good, praiseworthy things came out of this outreach-oriented approach. And this seemed like a successful way of doing youth ministry. Then came the burnouts. The youth began feeling more used than loved. And many left hurt and angry at the church. As a result of this, some youth ministries became more social in nature. Right? Youth ministry became a place to hang out with your best friends, to have deep, intimate, heart-to-heart talks. And here, Jesus is presented as the friend. Youth ministry became a safe place to be authentic, to be real. No judgment, no rebukes, no expectations, and eventually, no holiness. Many of these youth realized along the way, especially when they went to university, that they could find similar relational communities outside of their youth ministries. So they left their youth ministries behind and church became a weekly formality. Now, apart from the social side, some youth ministries pivoted to become more supernatural-oriented. They practiced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was an emphasis on speaking in tongues, in hearing from God outside of His Word, through dreams, visions, prophetic utterances, words of knowledge, and so on. And Jesus was presented as the miracle worker, And so the youth sought healing. They pursued supernatural experiences, both with God and the demonic. And again, this worked really well. But this supernatural approach to the Christian faith began to jar with the ordinariness of everyday living. There was this disconnect. I mean, what's so miraculously fascinating about honoring your parents, about studying hard for your school, about having to find a job once you're done with your studies? 
Right? So these youths struggled to live out the ordinary Christian life, and many became disillusioned and jaded with the Christian faith. Now, what I've shared with you is just an overview of some of the broader phases that youth ministries went through, especially in Singapore. And our youth ministry in Agape has also experienced many of these phases over the years as well. But what I want you to catch is that it is it's much harder than it seems to see and to have Jesus primarily as Savior. Many of these things that, that the youth ministries were doing, they're good things. Morals and behaviors, finding community among believers, seeking to be an agent of flourishing in this world, seeking God, even the miraculous, all these things are good and needful. But when we make those the ultimate things, that's when we start confusing who Jesus really is and what he really is about. So above all else, Jesus must be Savior. His gift must be salvation. His people must be saved. And as a youth ministry, we've become mindful that just because you know, our youth go to church, just because they attend uh, youth meetings, just because they pray the sinner's prayer at some point in their lives, just because they come from a Christian family, none of these things necessarily mean that they are saved. And that is a dangerous, dangerous assumption that we've come to recognize. And so that is why uh, at the Raised Ministry, we've given more emphasis to reading and understanding the gospel that is found in Scripture. This is why mentors are sought after for every member of the Raised Ministry, so that each youth has, has an older brother or sister who can journey with them through the faith. So pray with us. Pray with us that the Raised Ministry continues to center on the gospel and that the fruit of our labor would not only be more people available to serve the church, but that in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, the faith of these youth would be proved and that we would have mature, God-fearing, and saved men and women being baptized into agape. Jesus must be Savior. Let's look at the second statement in today's story. Woman, has no one condemned you? So back to our passage, Jesus is seated, seated in the midst of a crowd, surrounded by the Pharisees and scribes, but right before him is this woman caught in adultery, and hanging over the whole crowd is that first question, teacher, what do you say? Now in verse 6, we are told, yeah, we are told that they said this to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The religious leaders had laid a trap for Jesus. Now, what was this trap? You see, the religious leaders were right. According to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. And so if Jesus were to disagree and to spare this woman's life, then Jesus would have broken God's holy law. And this was a serious offense, and that would be something the religious leaders would use to discredit Jesus and his ministry. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus agreed that this woman should be stoned according to the law of Moses, then the religious leaders could charge Jesus under the Roman law because Jews were not allowed to, uh, to authorize executions, even from a religious perspective, and only the Roman authorities could do that. And so if Jesus did authorize the stoning, he would have broken civil law, and the religious leaders would see to it that Jesus was arrested and his ministry stopped. Now, of course, the crowd themselves, they wouldn't allow Jesus to just avoid the question. 
they wouldn't allow Jesus to just avoid judging the woman. You know, people love to hate adultery. And the Pharisees, they were very clever. They knew how to work the crowd. So Jesus was in a lose, lose, lose situation. Cannot stone the woman. Cannot let the woman go. And then cannot siam. Right? Cannot, cannot avoid the situation. Jesus was in a difficult position. Now, it's strange that we are told so little, however, about the woman. Because if Jesus was in a difficult position, now how much more this woman? And it seems like no one cares about her. The religious authorities were not interested in her repentance or her welfare. They were merely using her. Verse 4 tells us that they had caught her in the act of adultery. Now, this probably means that they had known beforehand about this affair. They had lain in wait until the act was committed. And then they had grabbed her out of her bed, maybe allowing her to wrap herself in the bed sheet or some minimal clothing. You know, the more seductive she looked, and I'm sure the Pharisees knew this, the more the crowd would condemn her. And this woman was supposed to be one of them. She's a fellow Jew, a daughter of Abraham, made in the image of God. Supposedly, she was a sister to these Jews, yet because of her adultery, she was treated like an outsider, treated as less than human. And now she was just a pawn in this game that the Pharisees were playing with Jesus. So no one cares about this woman. Now, Jesus had been sitting down when this woman was presented to him. And verse 6 tells us that when the charges were brought before Jesus, he didn't stand to pass judgment. Instead, he not only remained seated, but he stooped further down to write in the dirt with his hand. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus might have written in dirt, and it really doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus' posture. With all that drama going on around him, it just seems like Jesus is totally disengaged. Right? It's like he doesn't want any part of this. And I imagine that this whole episode must have been sickening to him. It must have sickened his heart. He doesn't want anything to do with this. But the religious leaders kept pestering him. They continued to ask him. And Jesus finally stood up and said to them, Let him who is without any sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then Jesus sat back down and continued writing in the dirt. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? Was Jesus saying that unless you have never sinned ever, you have no right to judge the, the, the actions of another sinner? Now, that is not what Jesus meant. If Jesus meant that, then we could never expect, God could never expect his people to enforce his law, to execute his judgments. The whole law of Moses would have become unworkable. So what Jesus is saying is that whoever has no guilt in this matter, in this situation, in this context, he may throw the first stone. Jesus was speaking specifically about the situation. Now, the first thing to clarify is that Jesus is saying that the woman is guilty. He does believe that the law should be kept and the stone should be thrown. Adultery is terrible. It destroys marriages, destroys childhoods, destroys families. It strains and tears the fabric of society. Adultery defiles the sacredness of a man and a woman made in the image of God who are meant to reflect God's purity, who are meant to reflect His loyal love through their faithfulness 
to their own spouses. So yes, Jesus was affirming that this woman deserved to face the full brunt of the law. But who should execute this judgment? The whole prosecution process was so messed up. It was so problematic. Now, according to the law, the actual eyewitnesses, the ones who saw her in the act, would have to be the ones to throw the first stone at her. But how do they explain how they caught her in the act? Do they lie and say they happened to stumble upon them as they were in the midst of their romping? And how come none of these witnesses tried to stop them from finally engaging in that sexual act? And where was the man she had the affair with? Right? The law requires both parties to face the consequences, not just the woman. How come he wasn't there next to her? Now, clearly, this woman is being exploited. And Jesus, by saying, him who is without sin may cast the first stone, he was calling everyone to examine their own hearts. And each of them came to realize that they weren't so different from this woman after all. You know, they had brought, they had hauled this woman, this sinful woman to court, only to discover that they were sinners themselves, perhaps even worse so than this woman. And so the scripture tells us, one by one, they left the scene and kudos to the elders who took the lead in being honest before God. They left first and the younger ones followed. And even the crowd dispersed as well. Their initial self-righteousness had turned to shame and embarrassment. And eventually it was just Jesus and the woman who are left alone. Now Jesus stands up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus acknowledges her. He looks her in the face and speaks to her. And he is the first person to address her. Now, calling her woman is not rude, all right? It's actually a term of respect at that time. That's how Jesus also addressed his own mother at various points. Jesus says to her, has no one condemned you? Now, this is such a picture of how Jesus stands with the sinner who has been devastated and humiliated by sin. Jesus brings healing with his acceptance, his forgiveness. He dignifies with his compassion. And by his authority, that sinner is no longer surrounded by accusers. You know, even after this incident, this woman could hold her head high in public because someone like Jesus had so convincingly defended her. She's no longer surrounded by hostility, but because Jesus saved her, she's now settled in loving grace. Those received by Christ must be settled in the church. We are the body of Christ. When Jesus receives a sinner into his kingdom, we are the arms of Jesus that surrounds that repentant sinner in loving grace. Now, sometimes this can be hard for the youth to grasp. They may have put their faith in Jesus. They may have come to repentance, but yet they struggle to sense that loving embrace from the body of Christ. And sometimes youth ministries, we don't help, right? Sometimes youth ministries are at war with the parents of the youth, right? Youth workers believe they are serving the best interests of the youth, but the parents keep getting in the way, right? Scheduling tuition, la, going on holiday, la, right? Youth meet meetings all deprioritized. 
Sometimes youth ministries are at war with the larger church. How can you sing such old songs? How do you expect the, the young people to worship? Why your sermons got no application to the young? Right? How are they going to follow along? Now, youth workers believe they know how best to settle the youth in the body of Christ. Now, at such times, youth ministries forget that these youth are actually primarily, first and foremost, under the authority of their parents and under the authority of the church. These are the ones firstly responsible for the souls of the youth and not the youth ministries. So as a, as a raised leadership, we were thinking about these things, and these were two values that we wanted to clarify for our ministry. The first is that we are a parents collaborating ministry. We want to support parents in their God-given role of imparting faith to their teenage children. Now this morning, you saw two ladies serving on stage in the worship team, and they are actually uh, a mother and daughter duo, and I think it was really beautiful to see that. Yeah, praise God. Such a demonstration of that value that we want to hold to. We want to encourage and support parents as they impart their faith to their children. Now, the second value is that we are a church-rooted ministry. The youth ministry is not meant to be run in isolation from the larger church, and we want to create opportunities for the youth to meaningfully interact with other generations found in Agape. Now, one of the ways we have done this is by organizing periodic visits to the homes of different Agapians. Right? These Agapians open their homes and they share their stories, their journey with their uh, true faith, the way they've wrestled with difficult periods in their lives. And the small group setting allows for the youth to get to know these Agapians and vice versa. So yeah, a quick uh, marketing, right? So if you are interested to open your home for the youth, no, please come and approach me. We are always looking for open homes. Now similarly, we also try to keep our youth engaged in the outreaches done by the church and where possible to also serve alongside older Agapians. Right? This is one of the ways our youth gets to know other Agapians and to learn from them as well. Now, we don't also want to undermine the Sunday service, right? where people of different generations gather together, worshipping together, fellowshipping together, and at the end of service, going up to Buzz and Bond, connecting with one another. And these are all ways to root the youth in the larger church. And this is also why we don't have a youth-only youth service in our church. So however possible, let's be the arms of the body of Christ and warmly wrap these youth in gracious love. Those received by Christ must be settled in the church. Let's move on to the third and final statement. Go, sin no more. Verse 10 ended with Jesus asking the woman, has no one condemned you? Now we come to verse 11 and we hear the woman's first and only words. She says, no one, Lord. Now looking at how the crowd had dispersed, it might seem that the woman gave the correct answer. But in reality, there is one person left who stands to condemn her. There is one person still who is without sin. There is yet one person who has the right to cast that first stone at her. And that man stands before her, Jesus. And now he pronounces his verdict. Neither do I condemn you. Now, I'm sure this woman already sensed his compassion, his forgiveness. 
but she needed to hear his pronouncement of pardon. She needed to know that she is released from the penalty of her sin. But Jesus didn't just stop there. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus' work of grace was not complete until he had sent her out. Jesus was sending her, sending her out not to go back to her sinful ways, but to pursue a life of righteousness. Now, many people argue about what Jesus means when he says, sin no more. Right? Is he calling this woman to that impossible life of complete perfection? But I want us to consider the woman's point of view. She would have understood that Jesus was calling her to leave her specific habit of adultery behind. She was to live as though it was the sin of adultery that got stoned and that died. And she now was given a second chance, a second lease on life. But to this woman, who one moment was indulging in her sinful affair and the next moment was dragged out of bed, who one moment was with her lover, but the next was all alone, who one moment was enjoying intimacy, but the next was being paraded through the city, who, whose sins for one moment was kept secret, but the next was declared publicly, who at one moment was enjoying the caresses of her lover, but at the next was bracing herself to feel the sickening thuds of stones against her body. You know, this woman had probably seen people in the crowd choosing their stones. Perhaps she'd even seen people already having stones in their hands. And as she looked out at the crowd, she looked around for mercy and pity, she probably only saw disgust and hatred. Once she had been brought before Jesus, she had probably already accepted that she would be stoned. But she may have wondered to herself, how many hits before I pass out? How many bones would have to slowly fragment and break before I black out? She may have even been silently praying, oh God, have mercy on me. Let that first stone strike me in the skull and knock me out. Spare me the excruciation of a long, agonizing death. But against all the odds, Jesus had saved her. Saved her from the violent penalty of sin and also through his defense of her, saved her from the vicious, accusatory power of her sin. The voice of her accusers had been silenced. So yes, when Jesus told her to sin no more, she knew it meant to abandon her adulterous lifestyle. But having spared, having been spared such a sudden, horrible death, God had granted her a new lease on life. What would she do with it? And she was probably resolving to return to God, to live a life devoted to Him, to never miss the daily prayers at the temple. She was probably resolving to make the situation right, to come clean to her husband, to make things right with her family. And she probably didn't take Jesus' words legalistic. Go, sin no more was the invitation she needed to live out a life of gratitude for the goodness of God towards her. People, the work of grace is not complete until the saved, settled sinner is sent. 
No, sometimes as Christians, our problem is that we want grace to be so appealing, so attractive, that we are very wary of demanding anything from potential Christians or even from fellow Christians. But when you see him who has no sin, choosing not to cast that first stone at you, when you are surrounded by a host of accusers from Satan to your own conscience, to the world that loves to hate you, even your loved ones, and you see hell itself opening to swallow you whole because yes, you stand condemned in your sin, but then you behold the mediator, the defender, the savior, Jesus, standing between you and your accusers. With a word, he defends you. When you see him bearing the excruciating penalty of death in your place, how can you not want to live for him? How could you ever be offended if someone were to tell you, hey, you are now a slave to Christ. You are a slave to righteousness. You need to abandon not only the external practices of sin, but the internal passions of your sinful heart. You're not offended. No, your soul delights at the opportunity extended to you. What? You're telling me, a sinner like me, to go and sin no more? And that's what my Lord and my Savior sees fit to expect of me? Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! I will happily, wholeheartedly glorify His name and don't you dare stop me. Similarly, for the raised ministry, we want to provide avenues for the youth to be sent for the Lord. Right before the pandemic, we had the opportunity to go for a mission trip to Manila and the Philippines. And it was beautiful. It's an awesome experience. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to do some of such trips sometime soon. But anyway, just at last year's youth camp, the youth also embarked on a learning journey to better understand the plight of migrant workers here in Singapore. And, and that was quite an eye-opening session for many of them. But these are just avenues through which we want to say to the youth, you have been saved by Christ, settled in his church. Now would you go and be sent for his glory? Now ultimately, the youth ministry exists to highlight and magnify the gospel. Today, through the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman caught in adultery, we get this glorious picture of that gospel. That gospel, which is the radical story of unbelievable insteads. Jesus is not teacher or whatever else we think him to be. Instead, he is our awesome savior. Through him, we are saved. But Jesus doesn't just save you and leave you be. Instead, the body of Christ, his church, wraps you in gracious love. Those he saves are also settled. And finally, Jesus doesn't save us to return to our sinful ways. Instead, his amazing grace frees us to live dynamically for him. Those who are saved and settled are also sent. Now, we take heart that this is not only true for the youth, but true for all of us who have placed our hope in Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.